Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month, we bring you the first of three special episodes focusing, for the most part, on stories from the Oxford Real Farming Conference, or ORFC, which took place in January. This year, we were delighted to be the ORFC's official media partner. So, fresh from the conference, we hear about the role of myth-making and storytelling in building the regenerative farming movement. And we learn about a new initiative to put nutrient density at the heart of good food and farming. Then, we hear from a young fashion designer about her innovative accessory collections, reawakening our connections between fashion and farming. And we have an urgent call for councils across the UK to recognise the value of real farming. In a few days' time, Trekadugan Farm in Pembrokeshire will be put up for auction, and we'll be hearing from Gerald Miles about efforts to protect it as a community resource. As part of this year's ORFC, writer and storyteller Georgia Wingfield Hayes shared a piece called The Herdsman. It tells the true story of Charles Ellett. He's now a happy herdsman at the Ethical Dairy, but he previously worked at an intensive dairy farm with 1,500 cows, where his mental health crashed. Through Charles's story, we learn what cheap food is doing to the land, the animals and the people involved in its production. We'll be releasing the full story as a short. First, though, let's hear from Georgia about why storytelling and myth-making are crucial to the regenerative farming movement and why they're so central to what ORFC is all about. We can tell the big picture story, where we, which we can't do with, with fact. Fact, we have to you know, zone in on, on specifics. And then there's the depth. So if we're disseminating facts, we're rarely, really touching any emotional notes or you know, the deeper sense, senses of who, you know, who we are as humans, whereas with story, we can really speak to those deeper parts. We have responses in, in our heart, in our emotion, in our gut. And um, I think that's incredible, incredibly powerful. And it's why storytelling has been the means of disseminating information through the entirety of human history. We've, we've sat around fires and told stories, you know, so it's now like a foreign language that we have to relearn because at conferences like this, we get lots of people standing up and, and disseminating facts, which is wonderful because we learn loads. Um, but storytelling, can, it's, it's broader and deeper because, because the, the storytelling that's used to sell neo-capitalist ideas and uh, what we might call old wives' tales and, and uh, you know, things that, that you shouldn't go to bed with wet hair because you'll get pneumonia. Or do, do you know what I mean? Like silly stories like that that we've believed um, potentially as a, as a culture and science has disproved. Um, with that, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater in that we, we've thrown away this much deeper relationship through our senses with with the world. We're living in this post-truth age where we've no idea actually when we go on the internet whether we're reading fact or fiction. It's becoming more and more difficult. And um, this, you know, 
this is a nightmare, but it's actually potentially very exciting because I think it might help cultivate an age where people are like, well, actually, the only way I really know what's true is if I come back, if I if I reclaim my autonomy over my senses and over how I interact with the world, that there's a deeper inner knowing. If if we again, if we can learn that language that then um, we can override all of the, all of everything that we're being fed. You know, we, we, we're so conditioned to um, give autonomy to, to fact, to external authority. But a society that does that is infantilizing its, its people. I would say that the, the kind of crux of it all is trust. It's very, very challenging for us to trust ourselves and our inner knowing because everything in our culture tells us we shouldn't. And so don't beat yourself up. It's a journey, but experiment with trusting. Experiment when you have the opportunity, when it's like your head says something and your heart says something else, and it's safe to trust your heart, trust your heart and see what happens. Because it's like that is the way that we step by step bring that autonomy back within ourselves and um, find our find our way to a much deeper sense of who we are, which is so much more exciting than than, uh, than the way that culture has us living. Yeah. People at a conference like this really are other people at the forefront of of understanding that and, and rekindling that and and rebirthing it if you like um and it's so important this is so vital this deeper relationship with with the earth with other beings um cultivating humility to realize that we don't have all the answers we can't possibly have all the answers living systems systems are incredibly complex science can't understand the, the totality of that complexity and therefore we have to find other ways to approach um, these systems we are we are these amazing complex sensory beings who can can read uh, the world on on many different levels if we if we allow ourselves to and if we if we allow ourselves to um, relearn that language so for me storytelling a myth really that, that's where I like really get excited about it because we get down and and dirty if you like with <laughs> who we are who we actually are and who we have the potential to become which is which is a far greater more exciting being than neo-capitalism would have us believe we are i'm a big advocate of beauty as a key part of a positive farming future beauty in the deepest sense of the word the Greek root of the word beauty is related to the word for calling. So beauty, in this, in this case, being something that moves you and calls you into being alive. When you listen to Charles's story, it really brings to life the value of beauty on a farm. Without it, farms may house living creatures, but they have no vitality. Matt Adams is a deep ecologist, and Elizabeth Westaway is a public health and nutrition specialist. They recently launched an initiative called Growing Real Food for Nutrition, or GRIFFIN for short. 
Griffin promotes the importance of growing, eating and measuring the quality of nutrient-dense food. Matt and Elizabeth are officially bringing to the UK the work of Dan Kittredge and the Bionutrient Food Association, who are helping to develop a bionutrient meter. At ORFC, they invited growers to bring in their vegetables and do a BRICS test to get a crude idea of nutrient density in their crops. We are right at the beginning stages. We need support and we need to find funding to make it happen. So the intention behind it um, is to ask the question, what is nutrition? Because I think it's a deep, deep question. And um, for me, as a deep ecologist, I'm interested in the worldview, our worldview that suggests that actually we're a part of nature. But we are living in a world that's dominated by the view where we try and control nature. So I am interested in promoting anything that can question our current worldview. So we're questioning this assumption. So control, it seems to me, is leading to a decline in the nutritional quality of our food, which is affecting both the health of the planet and human health as well. And we can feel and see that all around. So growing food for nutrition is about thinking of a different way of our relationship with the world and with nature and that we are realising we are a part of nature. So when you begin measuring food for its nutrient quality, you begin to think about what's going on. You begin to ask that deeper question of what is nutrition. And um, with the BRICS test, it's such a simple, simple test that you can... Everybody can just squash an apple and with a few drops look into a refractometer and find out roughly whether that's a, a poorly grown apple or a really excellent grown apple. And from field observation which is growers in the field actually watching what happens in these situations. If you've got a carrot, for example, that's in the excellent category, it not only tastes really, really brilliant, um, you get an increased yield, it, it grows really well. And, um, and there's even this claim that there's an absence of pest and disease. And the plant is able, what's happening is that plant is able to communicate with the life in the soil. And it's feeding that life in the soil with these exudates, the carbohydrate that it produces, it gives you know up to half of that down to the exudates, down to feed the, the soil microbes. And in return, the microbes are increasing in number. So as an organic life form, they are sequestering carbon in order to grow in population in number. And with an abundance of microbes in the ground, they're the ones sourcing all the mineral elements that the plant requires. And there's communication going on there. So it's a fabulous story. <laughs> so the plant is saying to the microbes, look, you guys wake up and here's some food to help wake you up. I need a little bit more selenium or molybdenum or some phosphorus. And these microbes are working in harmony with the plant to do that. It's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. And when we allow the plant and the microbes to work together, what the result of that is, is nutrient-dense food. It's a plant that's well-grown. And so the BRICS test is a way of assessing that. It's a crude assessment measuring carbohydrate, which relates to photosynthesis. And then moving that on to take it to the next level is the development of the bionutrient meter. So it's a scanner that uses spectroscopy. That means light reflectance. And in order to calibrate this tool, we need to do the laboratory analysis to find out what the nutrients are, for example, in a carrot, and then relate that to the reflected signal we get back from the scanner. So that 
when you build out a database with lots and lots of samples, you begin to expose the nutrient density of the food that we're growing. And, and that is revealing already some interesting results where spinach, for example, has got 14 times more iron in the best grown samples than like the worst grown samples. You know, and that's significant. And in carrots, they found 200 times more polyphenols than the worst grown carrot. And polyphenols, as you probably know, relate to secondary nutrients. And secondary nutrients, I think, is the big buzz story that's going to come up for nutrition because it relates to the plant's ability to look after itself in an, in, in, in an outdoor setting. And so it's this communication constantly with the microbes on an hourly, two-hourly basis, whatever, um, asking for certain chemistries, for certain minerals to build it compounds. And as we're now knowing what a, you know, the, the compounds, the secondary metabolites, there are thousands of them just in one carrot alone. So it represents, you know, an amazing chemical laboratory that's stimulated by life. There's two things together. So measuring nutrient density and developing the scanner, which would make it easy to do that, will expose the information of what's going on in our food. Um, but it will also become like a quality standard. You can set the bar and say, well, if we can produce food of this quality, then we know that in order to do that, you have to look after the soil. And... Um, and so we're making healthy soil and also we know that that food's going to make us healthy because it's now packed full of nutrients grown by nature. And I think the real big, as I said, the real big thing around secondary nutrients is this range and diversity of secondary metabolites where I think the key is going to come. So we could get potential cheating to show that, hey, we've got loads of sugar in this tomato and um, but we can also then ask the question with the meter do we have lots of secondary nutrients as well because you can grow your tomato in a hydroponic environment and it won't it won't need to fend for itself it's mollycoddled so it's not going to produce all these secondary nutrients so hopefully the scanner will begin to pick up on these subtle nuances that make all the difference. And, and, and also the, the ultimate test will then be to taste it and decide for yourself, is this good or not? And there's an irony here. I mean, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot. We don't need a scanner because we should have the innate ability to taste that food for ourselves and understand whether it's good or not. But we've lost that ability. So the benefit, I, I feel the benefit of the small farmer is that here is a way of testing the quality of food that would create the level playing field. And it's not about certification. It's about setting a quality standard. It's about setting a bar and saying, this is the quality we'd like. And if you can produce that, then we'd like to pay you respectively for that. And I have this little vision now of the future where when the grower is elevated in society and respected, then I know that we'll have, we'll, we'll have hit a, a nutrient-dense regenerative state. There's been 100 bionutrient meters made. They've been, you know, handmade. And I have, I believe, the one and only bionutrient meter in the UK. So 
that's why we want to do something good with it. And our intention, we need to find a laboratory which we are in negotiation with that can do the testing. And um, yeah, let's go from there. We've been wanting to share the work of fashion designer Alice Robinson for a few months. Her pieces beautifully bring farming into the limelight. Alice grew up in a rural community and so went back to her roots to create two collections, each made solely from one animal, using all parts of the animal for the collection, not a scrap wasted. Alice told us all about it. I was faced with a challenge when I was doing my master's at the Royal College of Art to create a collection um, and leather was sort of thrust upon me as if this was the material in which you made pieces with, which from that uh, point of view I could understand because leather is an incredible material to um, withstand many conditions and last a really long time. It's incredibly durable and a great natural material to work with. However, being a part of the conversation of what we're choosing to, what systems we're choosing to be a part of food-wise, I then found that quite difficult to understand what this material I was being given and where this had came from and what food system it had been a part of. For me, I was brought up in Shropshire as part of a very farming family. Um, my father was a vet um, and was brought up in that rural system of understanding my farmer, the butchers, the systems in which um, the animals being reared and the husbandry. Um, my father was a large animal vet, so that was sort of something I just always, always been um, uh, aware of and respectful of. I've now created two collections, both of which are the tag numbers of those animals. So I have one, one, four, five, eight, which is a sheep, uh, New Zealand Texel ram crossed with a Welsh mule, and Bullock 374, which is a longhorn limousine cross. Um, both are from um, my home county and farmers which I have uh, known and visited and understand their practices. The sheep collection I created 11458, um, I spun the wool um, and tanned the hide and so the whole collection sits within one box. So the size of that box is indicative of the animal which has created the collection. So there is a jumper, a pair of gloves, a bag, a pair of shoes, a little card wallet, all of the hardware are the bones um, uh, sort of dipped in silver and engraved and uh, then a perfume which is based on the trees and plants and time of year in which the animal came from that field. As a designer only working with what I've been left with, basically trying to have design which is mindful and not wasteful working with what is there rather than creating more problems. I then served 350 burgers of Sheep 11458 at the launch of the collection. So for me it was sort of trying to then have that connection back, the, have that um, conversation that there is, it's not too far apart from what you're holding to what you're putting in your mouth and that um, the fashion industry has a huge role to play in um, in educating people and to widening the conversation from not just going, oh, this isn't an animal product, therefore it's eco because it's not come from a food industry. So following on from that collection, we're curating an exhibition called Food Bigger Than The Plate, which was on at the Victorian Albert Museum. 
and they asked if they could exhibit it. But I had already been speaking to my local farmer, who's a guy called Malcolm Adams and has the most beautiful farm called Charity Farm. And so the connection to working with that farmer and that land and that community was something that was really important to me. I um, then took Bullock 374 through the entire process. Went to the abattoir, took the hide away, tanned the hide, both hair on and hair off, and then had the split. So the split is when you slice through the thickness of leather and that drop, you then buff up and that's why you have suede. So it was important for me to be able to have the hair on in this collection, which is really showed um, what breed the animal was. So Longhorn um, Limousin Cross meant he was like, brindled and it was incredibly beautiful and also um, really emotive which I think is also key to creating uh, the work is that um, the preciousness of these items and this throwaway culture if you're able to sort of you know engage someone that that isn't just the spring summer 16 that you know there is something that um, you know to be cherished. I then used the horns of Bullock 374 to make the buttons and the bones to make buttons and the closures and then worked with a perfume maker in Cornwall to create a perfume which was based on the field in which Bullock 374 came from. I, through working this way, had the opportunity to know which tannery I was working with to understand how the water filtration systems worked where was every single element of waste from this one animal going and documenting it throughout because as a designer as well it's um, a huge lesson to learn and um, you know you can then make certain design choices or just system choices um, that that you know it's so useful to be able to design out problems there's a statistic that two-thirds of a hide is wasted in the production of one accessory because leather is an animal byproduct. So there are bits that are stretchy or the tummy is, you know, not the best place to cut from, but it's all relevant for different items. So for me, I was, I decided that I would design and make the entire collection at the same time so that I could problem solve and repurpose all of these um this design to fit, fit the purpose of each item. So everything is designed as long and as wide and um, and specifically to fit, fit the hide. Um, that then means that when the collection all sits together, it has this image of um, exactly what has gone into creating this item. I then spent nine and a half hours with a butcher, which was such an experience who knew it took nine and a half hours to butcher an entire bullock well it does and it's really cold and it was great it was such an informative day um i worked with my local butcher who was absolutely brilliant i had um spreadsheets and and all this labelling to make sure that every cut I chose to make was for a different purpose. So I sold the meat locally um, to like the local community as much as how uh, Malcolm Adams, the farmer, would have. Um, I then also um, did dinners that were sort of centred around the whole conversation of um, like of the project. So 
for the closing of the exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum, I did a dinner for 70 people and it was three courses of Bullock 374. Uh, I had the leather collection present and it was just really trying to bring back this connection between um, food and what we're wearing and how the two industries have just this huge overlap. Um, I then also got to do the same style of dinner, but up north with the guys from the abattoir and the butcher and the local farmer in our community. And we had big chuck pies and pints and it was just brilliant but it was just amazing that how far apart those two sort of worlds were so yeah that was that was really great there's a growing fiber shed movement here in the uk linking farmers processors and fashion designers we're helping to get fiber shed uk started so if you're interested in being involved then do follow fiber shed uk on instagram or you can tune into future farmerama episodes and we'll be keeping you in the loop Finally, we wanted to share the story of Tregadugan Farm in Pembrokeshire, southwest Wales. Its history goes back to the 11th century, and it's been a council farm for nearly 100 years. Now, though, the council has decided to sell it off. A group from the local community, including farmer Gerald Miles, is fighting to buy Tregadugan and turn it into a community farm. But their attempts have so far been thwarted despite the fact that they've met all of the council's demands. The council says it's following due process, and it's announced that the farm will be put back up for auction on the 4th of March. Sam Roddick is one of the backers of the Save Trekadugan Farm campaign. She told us the community are appealing to other potential buyers to step back and allow the community to fulfill the dreams for themselves and all who live there. Sam also highlighted that this is part of a larger concern as more and more county farms come up for sale. As she put it, how can we repurpose them and get them to be part of the movement for social justice, food justice, and land justice in the UK? Here's Gerald to tell us more about the fight for Trekadugan Farm. We have over 40 council farms being sold all over Wales. And the one locally to us, which is near the village of Solver, is now going to be sold. It was my cousin's uh, husband's farm, and he farmed there all his life, over, over 60 years. The council are selling this off to get more money to invest into the social care and what they actually, they're responsible for. These farms is more than an asset in monetary terms. It's the opportunity for young people to start farming. These were bought after the First World War as an opportunity for young people that came from the war to start farming. And this is what it should be kept at. At the moment now with the council selling it, they're denying us the opportunity of turning it into a community farm, which would be a place for the community to enjoy it, to be rewarded in being there, in learning how to grow vegetables. It can be such a gem to the well-being of the community. 
and it would empower the community because it would be their farm, a place they could care for. It could be shared in so many ways, creating small enterprises like making cheese, preserves, having a small butchery there, different crafts, having children there to see how vegetables are grown, employing young people on the place and making it a vibrant local enterprise, involving the people and the farm together. The point is, it's a community farm. It's our farm anyway. The council should, by right, give it to us because we're going to do a job they should be doing when we approached the council about this in the first place, we invited them to be part of it. But at the present, we're getting no support from the council. In the first place, they thought we were uh, dreaming in our approach of creating a community farm that would benefit the community and benefiting young people and elderly people and children in the area. They thought we were imagining all this. They wanted us to give a 50,000 deposit within seven days. They put that as a challenge to us, but we raised it. And when we brought the money to the council uh, office, they didn't know what to do. They said, we don't need it. Then they took it off auction, but still had bids in. We had a funder to support us and we we were the highest bidder and we bought it. The funder at the time withdrew because the council wanted to put place an overage on the farm. An overage is a legislation, a sort of tax. Whatever you invest into this and improve the buildings on this farm, it ranges over 25 years, the increase in value, we will have to pay 30% of that increase of value to the council. At that time we bought it, we were disputing this. They wouldn't maneuver at all or be helpful about this, so our funders pulled out of it. Then we sent an email to the council requesting a meeting. The next email we had in return, the council stated that it's going back on auction and if we wanted to place a bid in, we had four days to do it. We did that and we managed to actually accomplish to win the bid on the second round and we had a funder to cover this. At this moment in time now, we are faced with the decision because the council have just told us that they're gazumpting us, they've got another higher bidder to come in for the farm. Because of a report in the local paper that stated the price that was paid for the farm. But that report was of the previous, the first time bidding round. So this is what we're faced with. We're faced with a council that are employed by us. They're supposed to work for us and help us. 
their role should be to help us create a community farm, not to really try to manipulate to get the best price out of it. This is a lovely farm. It was built back in the 14th century. Two families lived there and farmed there. Instead, it's going to be sold as an asset and it's going to be turned into another holiday complex. People will stay there and not really care for the buildings, for what they are and what they were meant to be. They've taken 70 acres away from the farm, so it isn't a holding as it was anymore. They've rented that to another bigger farm. They've left this holding farm with only 11 acres. It's left to be developed and turned into a sort of housing holiday complex. We're in the situation now where we're going to get as much media coverage to get media pressure. As well, we're going to get, try to get political support from the Welsh Assembly because it's more than our local farm. It's all council farms in Wales. It's all council farms all over the UK. And if you're talking about climate change and you're concerned about food security and you're concerned about community, it's common sense that we should invest in the community. There was a young friend of mine who I was talking to last night, and they, their farm where he's working is for sale, and his nine-year-old son works with him growing the vegetables. And they were talking about this, and the son had heard them, and this nine-year-old boy say, what right have we got to own the soil when we're living here? We don't cherish it. It's an asset. Instead of without it, we won't have food. Farmerama is made by Joe Barrett, Abby Rose and me, Katie Revel. In this episode, there were interviews by Darla Eno and editing by Louis Hudson. Community support is provided by Hannah Sutherland, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Olivia Oldham. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. We also heard some music recorded at this year's ORFC from a session led by Robin Gray at St Aldate's Church. I'll be good to the land, and the land will be good to me. Now if you pass by here, you might hear a tune.